Hello, everyone. Hope everyone's having a fantastic day. My name is Rob Achenkloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge of the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that you can use their lessons in your own life. Now, today's episode is sponsored by the Holocene Newsletter. You can find it at holocene.substack.com, and I write a weekly piece that features a single exposition, some of the best things I found and watched and ate the past week, as well as a photo essay. And there are plenty of examples on there you can see, uh, and feel free to sign up for the free version, which comes out every month, and the paid version, which comes out every single week. Now, today I'm joined by Razib Khan, and Razib sent me this bio and I was thinking about kind of rearranging it to fit my normal thing, but I just think it's so perfect. I'm going to read it uh, as is. He says, I do genetics. I write more broadly. I'm a public intellectual without a portfolio. I have opinions on a wide range of topics. I currently work at Incitome and consult for an array of private sector clients. I have written for the publications that include the New York Times, City Journal, India Today, National Review, Slate, Unheard, Colette, and The Guardian on a broad range of topics. Now, in his and my discussion, we talk about everything from the future of genetics to how he was the first person that was able to successfully map his future baby boy's genome and more. And all that is coming up right now on the Halcyon Podcast. And I hope you all enjoy this edition with myself and Razib Khan. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Razib, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. So, Razib, what is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? Uh, I think about emails uh, that are possibly um, needing my attention because they're a problem. And, and these are related to work, as in what you do day to day, or the research you're doing, yes. or all the above? Yeah. Yeah, work, work. Um, and, and the work you're doing now, how would you describe this work to your eight-year-old self? Uh, basically, I would say I do biology and I do evolution. I'm a scientist. And if they kind of pressed you a little bit harder on that to try to figure out what, what exactly you were doing or working on, what would you say? Uh, I study how human populations are related to each other, and I also tell people how they're related to each other. And, and do you think this eight-year-old version of yourself would be proud of you? I think eight-year-old self would be interested in me. Got it. And, and so we met on a clubhouse room uh, that was aptly titled, uh, you know, Raising and Breeding Wolves. Uh, is this something that you know, people should do or not do? And even though I don't think we ever spoke about wolf breeding whatsoever. Um, but in the process, I got to learn about not only the research that, that you're doing now, but the research that you have done. Um, and I did, I did a deep dive on, on the stuff that you've been, been working on. Um, and I, I just think that the best way to start this conversation is asking you a really simple question, which is, what is something you believe that most don't, especially in relation to the kind of work and research that you do? Ooh. Want to get me canceled? <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think um, I think population structure, population history for humans is significant. It's real, and it may have consequences that we can't anticipate um, socially, culturally, um, you know, biologically. Yes, yeah, and I, and I think that you know, I'm one of the few people that actually do, do agree with you on that. And and the more you you kind of unveil the curtain and open up and look to see what's actually going on and kind of trace as, as you know, just any subset of any species anywhere, not species, we're all the same species, but any subset of any kind of group around the globe through their evolution, you, you can back that up. Um, and so, and, and like, I'm not trying to get you canceled, right? So that wasn't, that wasn't the point of the question. Um, although, you know, I think that it's very hard to talk about genetics and um, other things like that. Like I, I've said some things that are very, you know, backed by science in the past and people have just labeled me as eugenicist just based on, you know, <laughs> giving out what I believe to be just pure scientific uh, reasoning. Um, 
And you're known for saying that we are in the second age of eugenics. What you want to kind of explain to me what, what you believe that is? Sounds like you're reading my Twitter or my Wikipedia entry, right? Um, yeah, I did. Yeah. So basically uh, what that means is um, the first age was kind of primitive insofar as uh, really didn't have a good sense of the genetics. Really, people didn't really have a good sense of how the biological mechanism worked. Today, we have a lot of technology like in vitro fertilization, genetic screening, pre-implantation diagnosis um, that allows people to make personal individual choices, healthcare choices, uh, based on what they want for their children, for themselves, um, what they value. So, you know, um, a lot of academics are very progressive and they oppose eugenics, but they also, because of delayed fertility, make recourse to in vitro technology, and I know that they do pre-implantation not pre-implantation, they do um, prenatal testing quite regularly because if you're, yeah. a, last I checked, if you're a woman and you're 35 or above, you can get a test that checks to see if you, your, your fetus has Down syndrome and 90% of the time, if it's positive, the Down syndrome fetus is terminated, there's an abortion, the fetus is killed, whatever. What is that? What, what do you call that? I, I, I think that is eugenics, but if I bring this up, people are very quiet and they don't want to talk about it because eugenics is something other people do. Yep. What they're doing is, you know, having a healthy child that, you know, actualizes themselves in the world in the way that they want. And when it comes to selecting their partner who has to have a PhD as well, well, that's not eugenics. That's just someone who worked as hard as them. So people use euphemisms. Uh, what you're, re but what really is happening here is people are making choices about what they value in other human beings and their children. And um, I don't think they're owning up to it, which is fine, if they didn't make a big deal about genetics. Yes, and and I think that it's it's reasonable for people to want to know if the child they're bringing into this world is going to have a decent quality of life. Um, and I think that's that's pretty subjective in, in modern society. Yeah, because. Um, because you already said that quality of life, what does that mean? And, yeah. you know, some people who have children with Down syndrome, they take objection to some of the assertions that the majority make. And it's a very emotional topic. Um, and I think that's why people don't touch it. It just it, it frustrates me that um, scientists and scholars and academics don't want to talk out loud about something that they themselves are actually very heavily involved in. Because, as I said, Older parents, you know, parents that assume they're going to have one to two children, they're the most likely to make use of these technologies. And so it's one of those things, if this was mostly working class people, I think they would talk about it all the time. But it's not. It's their colleagues. Yeah. It's them. And so they don't talk about it. And 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 so I think, because I am the product of IVF uh, and a sperm donor, because my father had uh, testicular cancer in college and wasn't able to father children. Um, so like I, I like a lot of these things you say like they're things that my mom went through and and went through years and years of trying to, you know, uh, uh, have have a kid and have my, me my, my sister and I, and I, I just think that I look you know I I don't think I'm too far away from having kids but it's not around the corner you know I'm 26 so uh, it, you know down the road I think that you know it seems like every year more and more testing becomes possible for you to be able to really pinpoint and understand some kind of really, really rare things that could actually be off with the fetus, you know, and, and those kinds of things may yeah. uh, end up leading to quality of life. And I, I think that, you know, this goes back to the whole abortion debate anyways, right? And so that's why I'll, I'll never, if someone, you know, takes that test that you mentioned that let's, you know, that basically is a is highly accurate way of, of understanding if the fetus you're bringing to this world will have Down syndrome, you know, it's, it's the choice of the parents. You know, I, I, you know, I believe that, you know, whatever they view as quality of life, some people will be like, you know what, life is life, and, and I want to give this individual the best chance they have to, to live a, ha a happy life as they can. But I think, as you said, most people will say, I, I just don't think that they would have the quality of life that I'd want from my own child or for myself. Um, and you're right, it is a very yeah. taboo topic, right? Yeah, yeah. People, I mean, it's one of those taboos where, if you call people on it, they're not going to really respond. That's my experience because they don't even want to acknowledge that issue because then they would have to acknowledge their hypocrisy. Yes, correct. Um, and this is, you know, this, this, when you do a simple search of your name, also on your Wikipedia page, but also a lot of articles talking about it, um, you are a father 
and you actually did fully sequence your own child's genome before they even entered this world. Is that correct? Yeah, he's the first. He's the first, first human being documented born with that done. So, can you kind of walk me through the process of what it took to go from like everything starting from the decision to not only go through this, but how you went about doing it and what you learned in that process? Yeah, I mean, the decision was a little bit ad hoc in terms of I thought the technology would be there by then and it wasn't, and people were dragging their feet on it. So, it wasn't like a deep thought. It was just we wanted the most information possible on the fetus coming into the world, obviously, um, my wife and I. In terms of how we went about doing it, um, it was possible partly because I had resources as a genomicist involved um, in this sort of research and attached to a genome center. And um, so we did a workaround where we did chorionic villi sampling to get a simple test. So that basically takes some placental tissues uh, um, from from the fetus. And um, the lab that did the testing, the simple PCR polymerase chain reaction testing, um, I kind of bullied them into sending me the genetic, amplified genetic material. And um, so they sent it to me. And then my lab um, at the university I was at, uh, they sequenced the DNA uh, uh, in a pooled sequence with mushrooms. Um, and then after the data was brought back, I pulled my son's DNA out of the raw reads. And then I did all the analysis myself. Got it. So how long did that process take, like just kind of to, to benchmark people? It took about a month in terms of mostly the month was a couple of weeks of wrangling with the lab. Um, so it took a couple of weeks for the lab to just get to the process of amplifying the DNA. And then once we got the results back, I started harassing the lab to send the, the amplified the DNA. Yeah. yeah. And so that took another couple of weeks. And then once that happened, um, it was the sequencing happened within a week. Got it. And then so once you had the full sequencing, um, what kind of analysis did you do to understand what kind of potential genetic disposition your future child might have in the world? Uh, so I basically um, ran it through Promethease, which is a tool um, to look for SNPs that are informative. I looked at specific things like, you know, eye color, hair color, you know, basic things. Um, the coverage, the quality of the genome wasn't quite high enough that I would have been super confident if we discovered a mutation. But yeah. I looked at like the basic characteristics inherited from both parents, um, you know, carrier carrier screening, stuff like that. Um, so basically, you just have like a list of like hundreds of genetic positions you want to look at, and I just ran it through a program and I looked at them. And and would you did you would, did you find that you know the the more absolute values that you were able to determine were in reality exactly as they panned out to be? Yeah, I mean we didn't find anything super super like informative, which is fine because we didn't want to because you don't want to find out a disease, right? Um, there yeah, was nothing exactly. actionable, as they would say. There was nothing actionable, but yeah, um, pretty much the results that I found like for his physical appearance matched. Um, you know, he has lighter hair color than his sister and that's what i predicted looking at the genomic data he has dry earwax that's what i predicted from the genomic data like those sorts of things like these coarse physical characteristics that you're kind of curious about um you know he has darker skin than his sister i predicted that from the genomic data so it pretty much matched i mean i looked at things where i was pretty confident that they were very heritable yeah so i i think the biggest question i have is so when when do you think we'll see because this I guarantee you, especially in the wealthier brackets, because this seems something like that, you know, at first would be expensive, but then eventually gets democratized and is available to everyone and is almost like pedestrian. Uh, when do you think we'll see this more often uh, in use? Because I feel like a lot of a lot of parents would would pay a lot of money to to get this kind of information on their child before it comes out. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, they haven't, and I think it's because of the way the American economic system is. Um, so what I would say is I think before the end of before 2030, yes, this will be relatively common. There's several companies that are already in the space, uh, genomic prediction, Orchid Health, uh, Myome, and so these are startups with funding and backers, and they're looking at you know a lot of them are looking at concierge medicine and um, in vitro 
fertilization, pre-implantation, yep. genetic diagnosis, that sort of thing. So there's a market. The question is how big the market is, what's the scale, then eventually how is it going to get to the point where doctors are prescribing or recommending this sort of um, technique for just regular patients? Because right now, as I said, uh, insurance covers pre-implantation or uh, prenatal uh, genetic testing for Down syndrome and a lot of the basic things, and yep. it's non-invasive. So non-invasive prenatal testing is free for anyone 35 and older now in the United States. It's basically free if you have insurance, you know? Got it, yeah. um, And we don't talk about it. And that's only within the last five years, by the way. This was, yeah, this not I mean, I had no idea. Like, say, yeah. yeah, it was not possible in 2014. And then um, it just became ubiquitous within a couple of years, and nobody even talks about it uh, because, well, I mean, one, the, the, the consequence of a positive test is usually an abortion yep. in the second trimester, and most people don't want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what it is mostly, honestly. But. Interesting. I, I, I just think that we'll get to a point where, I mean, how far, I mean, sorry, how, how far do you think this will go, right? So do you think we'll get to a point in, you know, a few decades where we understand, you know, obviously it seems like genetics is, is one of those Moore's Law fields where like every two years we seem to almost double our knowledge of, of everything that, that, that's come before. Um, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong, but uh, do you think we'll get to a point, maybe two or three decades, where people can very accurately predict, you know, exactly what their child might be and every single potential downside there may be? And you think that people will be much more likely to potentially abort a child because it's not the ideal child they want? You know, like, I guess that's the argument that some people might bring up. Um, yeah, I think um, I think mostly it'll be more like pre 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 implantation egg screening because that way. I mean, because gestation, I mean, that's just like a whole thing, you know? Yeah. So I think the, I think the abortions will mostly be like, you know, un, unforeseen things, like some sort of massive mutation that produces, you know, macro mutation produces Down syndrome. Um, I, I do think people, some people will use pre-implantation genetic screening pretty widely to get like a characteristic cluster of characteristic traits. And that's going to be a kind of a separate track as far as what we know. There's some traits that are going to be hard to figure out because they're highly environmental, highly um, random. But then there's other traits I think we will know a lot better. And um, I think they will be used like quantitative traits like risk for type 2 diabetes, intelligence, height, beauty even. Um, I can imagine that being figured out um, through facial, facial feature prediction and mutational analysis. Yeah. And then I think that comes back to your second point where it's like one could argue that this is eugenics, but no one wants to talk about that. Right. Um, yeah. It's going to be called something else. Yeah. Something nice so, and fancy. That's, I'm, that's not <laughs> democratic. Like, you know, empowered, empowered genetic choice or I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Yeah. But that, but that's, but that's what, that's what society does is that, you know, there's, something that someone will say, someone, someone usually a pioneer in a field or a new, new way of thinking in a certain topic, and then they'll be canceled. And then two years later, some, some organization, corporation, or individual will come out with the exact same thing, but it rebranded and all shiny. People be like, oh, this is lovely, amazing, let's all do it, you know? Um, that's kind of been yeah. science the past 200 years, right? So, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Your, your research from you you do have a phd correct no no i i, I left before i finished so everything but this and what what were you what was what were you studying in the phd or what were you going to write your dissertation on it's mostly on mammalian genomics um domestication mammalian genomics uh selection that resulted in tameness in equids specifically i worked on cats too got it Okay, and then what was what was what drove you to that that kind of region of research? Like, what was the the key point for you personally? I'm I'm interested in big data, and I'm also interested in questions of domestication and evolution, and natural selection. Um, I'm interested for humans. I'm interested for non-humans. I'm interested in the whole um, just Anthropocene shift in a lot of animals. Yep, and that's and that's what you mainly write your uh, Substack and your own podcast is about, correct? That's kind of like the through line if I had one. I have a lot of other interests like Chinese history and whatnot. You've probably seen that too. Yep. Is there, is there like, is, is, so not to kind of dig too deep on this, but is there like a certain subset of a region of history that really kind of fascinates you? You mentioned Chinese. I don't know if it is that, but there's something else that like really you will just, you know, you could spend infinite amount of time on and be pretty content, continue doing it. So 
I've been. Re- I know a lot about Chinese history, um, Imperial Chinese history. I know a lot about um, Roman history, Greco-Roman history. I mean, those are the two things that I know about. I know a fair amount about American history, nineteenth-century, eighteenth-century stuff. Though that's interesting to me. Um, uh, Central Asian history. I, yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I'm really interested in history. So, yeah, uh, not uh, the main. The main difference is I'm probably not as interested in twentieth century and history as a lot of people because I think like you kind of already absorb that from TV and documentaries and your yes. education. So, I'm more interested in older stuff because that's the stuff that most people don't know. Yeah, it's the stuff that's harder to find. You know, actual empirical evidence of it happening, right? That's, it's not just that, because I mean, there's plenty of records, you know, dating to like the 1500s with the printing press and stuff. And the Chinese kept really good imperial records. It's yep. just people aren't interested in it because it's old and they don't care, you know, yeah. white males or dead Chinese males. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? It's just people want to know about the 60s. They want to know about stuff that's relevant to them. And I think that's yeah. kind of like dumb and, uh, um, you know, short-sighted. But most people are dumb and short-sighted. So I guess the, the the best way to phrase this next question is if you had to if you were teaching like a college level history class and you were trying to get the most recent generation Gen Z to, to become interested in in the stuff you just talked about that most of them don't even care about like what would what would the the value proposition be for them like why why would you how would you convince them to be like this is way more interesting and also more important to understanding um, humanity than you know, the 60s. Well, I mean, uh, think about it from an American perspective to understand the rise of China and its views on diplomacy, geopolitical, geopolitics, individual rights, um, what the good life is. It's totally incomprehensible without Confucianism, um, without an understanding of Chinese bureaucratic um, governmental structure. And, um, you know, if you just like think it's communist, you'll be really misled. Yes. So uh, a lot of the things that you see all around are are due to deep roots, deep history. And that patterns a lot of the world. Now, a lot of Gen Z, a lot of people your age are stupid and they think it all has to do with European white colonialism. And I I reject that. I don't think it's true. Um, I also think it's kind of a weird, frankly, racist view that that non-Europeans had no history or culture or anything beyond beyond Europe. So um, I think that that's, that's just an unfortunate reality of what's going on with the educational system today and the ideologies that are being promoted yeah so there's a couple there's a couple good offshoots there i want to i want to hit on each one um if if there's someone listening to this right now that is maybe uh you know maybe they're they're too young for college yet or they're they're past college are there any are there any particular books that you'd, you'd push people to or papers or research centers to learn more about uh let's just say like you know ancient chinese history or you know more recent last you know thousand years well if for like for like chinese history um i would generally say like read um john king fairbanks new history of china or china new history with the most recent edition he's old he died like i think like 20 years ago now but it's a really good comprehensive treatment and i think it gives you all the general outlines that you want to um know probably also like read the analects uh, Confucius is supposed to saying they're pretty short, but it gives you, I think, a good flavor for the way they thought and the values that they had. Yes, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a person, a huge fan of Confucius. So, um, you know, he's he's helped me through some some interesting spots in my life, just because I, I think some people would call him pithy, but I just think it's almost perfect, right? It's like they're they're not nothing, nothing of his is very long, but it doesn't need to be, right? It's like it's it's it's, it's parsimonious. It's exactly yeah. the, the length that it needs to to make sense. Um, and you touched on something that that has been something that, especially in like the Twitter sphere, I think you and I kind of exist in the same same bubble on Twitter for a lot of like the tech science stuff. Um, what do you um, like? How would you go about fixing the American education system? Like, what, what would be your first move in that kind of? Uh, yeah. Realm? Well, I mean, I think the primary thing right now is you know my wife has really influenced my thoughts on that. She's read a lot of education. Um, you know, the importance of knowledge. Um, instead of skills, you teach kids things and, you know, the knowledge will always stay with you. Skills always change. Like, you know, if you learn Pascal to program, like that's useless now. Um, you know, back in my day, well, actually not even in my day, but before my day, um, people used log tables and other things to like, I forget what they, they used it for like division and all sorts of things that yeah. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like they, before calculators, there were like log tables, and you had to learn how to use you know these sorts of weird tools that you don't have to use today. That's a skill, but like the skills are useless. So yeah. I think like you know 
just knowledge, the classics, you know, these sorts of things are super important. And I got a lot of that because I was in a kind of like a not traditionalist, but like just kind of more of a old school schools randomly while I was growing up and not all this progressive stuff. And, and I don't mean progressive in a political sense, but just change, change, change. It's just not it's not necessary. Like people know how to educate and learn. They've been doing it for thousands of years. And we're not yes. we're not producing anything better. We're producing things worse. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's uh, to, and then we'll I want to want to we'll we'll go from here and talk about you growing up. But I think to add on that point, you know, my background's in aerospace engineering, and so you know, when I was working for NASA, people always ask me, it's like, well, we were at the moon in, in the '60s, and now we're not really we're barely making it past orbit. And I'm like, yes, this is this is a good example of, of the saying you just said, right? It's like we're not really doing anything better; we're actually doing it much worse. Right. Because um, you don't really yeah. have the, the, the there's not really the belief anymore. And also this idea that like, you know, I, I believe that science is the great engine of progress in, in humanity and society. Right. Um, and that comes down to research and interests. And I think that this newer generation seems to care less and less about science. And, and, and I think ingrained with science is also history, because if, you, if you're learning science, but you don't also understand or read history, then you're going to repeat the same mistakes that everyone else has. Yeah. Um, and that's what history is, right? It's a collection of the, of the, usually the mistakes of the, the humans that have come before us, uh, in the Holocene. Right. So, yep. um, yep. so you, you were born in Bangladesh, correct? Yeah. And when did you, when did you come to America? I went, I was five, five and you I were just in five. just turned five and you were in upstate New York, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Upstate New York. My dad was getting his PhD. So that's where I grew up for elementary school then um, when I was a teen, early teen, we moved to Eastern Oregon, where my dad had a faculty position for a while. And, you know, I went to University of Oregon, I've lived in the Pacific Northwest, um, California for a while, went to grad school at UC Davis. And now I'm in Texas. I'm in Austin, Texas. Um, this is, we'll touch on Austin briefly in a second. But, uh, you know, another thing that I, I did, you, you have mentioned in a few interviews in random places and podcasts, um, and also, as note, is on your Wikipedia page. Um, you grew up Muslim and then converted to an atheist. What was, the, what was that moment for you when you realized or decided that you were no longer going to practice what I assume is what your family's religion is? Yeah, I mean, so I actually don't think it's accurate to say I converted because... Um, when I was eight, I just realized one day that I didn't really believe in it. Yeah. And, um, like, in terms of just, like, I had never really believed in it. It wasn't, like, I had, part of it was, like, I realized, okay, like, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. But part of it was also, I started realizing, oh, people take this stuff seriously in a way that I just don't and never have. And I thought yeah. they were just like me. And it was just, does that make sense? No, totally. I, I have the exact same kind of upbringing where my parents were, not uber religious, but they were, you know, church every Sunday. I went to church school and I just remember getting kicked out of church school class almost every week because I would be like, why? But like, why is this the way it is? And why do we do this? And how do we know this is the way it is? And yeah. they would get mad for questioning them, you know? And I grew up in liberal yeah. Massachusetts, right? Catholic liberal Massachusetts. But uh, yeah, no, it, ma yeah. it makes total sense. Um, I, I just, there's this great article and I kind of want to get your opinion on it. I don't know if you've read it, um, but I think the title is Atheism is the antithesis of the scientific method. And the argument is that uh, if you're truly a scientist, you should be agnostic because you're, you know, science is falsifiable, right? And I'm not sure how I really feel on it. I, I thought about it for a long time and I kind of swing back and forth, but how, how do you feel about that ideology? Well, I mean, so I think the issue with science is I'm not um, a Gouldian insofar as non-overlapping magisteria necessarily, but I do think um, when you're doing science, that's kind of a separate mental enterprise that you need to kind of encapsulate from the rest of your philosophical views. So the way I would say it, this is like a really like difficult issue because it's hard to communicate to a lot of people. But for me, I've had issues. Um, it's one of those things where I think knowing science and knowing the mechanisms of the world, personally myself, imply to me that the world is atheistic in the way that I understand that people believe in God, okay? Yeah. But I don't think that that's a scientific proposition. And, and I also acknowledge empirically that I know really good scientists who are Christians or Muslims or whatever. Yep. So that's an empirical fact. They're doing great science. And also, you know, my assessment 
of the lack of, as we understand it, supernaturalism or in, in the world around us is more of a philosophical inference rather than a testable scientific inference. So when it comes to doing science, I never think about religion or God, and why should I? Yeah, no, I agree. But, but like, you know, that would probably be the same if I was religious, you know, because what does it have to do with this? You know, what does it have to do with this anal analysis? It doesn't really have anything to do with this analysis. So, um, yeah. Perfect. Um, and you, you said you're now in Austin. How long have you been in Austin for? So, it's been, wow, it'll be five years next month. So, Got it. Yeah. So, so you, you moved in before the current Russian boom of people to Austin that I'm sure you see every single day. Um, I suppose. I suppose. Yeah, it is a rush. It is. You're right. For sure. I mean, I, I just feel like uh, last year, a good half of the people I knew lived in either New York or SF or LA, and now half of them live in Austin or Miami. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's like people at first were like, oh, this is just a Twitter thing. And I was like, no, this is, this is a real migration, so to speak. Um, but I think, I think it'll reverse. It's, I think some people will just, you know, go back after a while, but like what I, I, I am personally a big fan of Austin. Like what, what for you is, it makes it, uh, you know, a good place to live for you and your family. Um, so what I would say is, um, I'm not a big fan of snow and, um, it's, it's not static. Um, it's dynamic. That's cliche, but it is. Um, New York is like super excited. It has all this culture, but New York has kind of a weight of history and its own self-importance. And I don't think Austin is like that. Um, there was a South Park episode from like, I don't know, a long time ago about how in San Francisco people smell their own farts cause it smells so good, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I think that just gets that kind of like the self-regard that people on the Bay area have like, oh, they're so progressive and advanced and, you know, Silicon Valley is creating the future. And I think people in Austin are a little bit more just relaxed and um don't take themselves as seriously i do like that food here is great uh and um you know i don't like hit the club scene or anything like that very much but it's there and it brings a certain energy um there are things like homelessness and other problems that you have in sf for example but it's not nearly as bad and um yeah i, mean, I think those are primary things and you know, Texas is an up-and-coming state. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Uh, I'm from the West Coast, so I do miss the mountains. Um, that's not replaceable here, but uh, yes. there, are, you know, there are other things like Houston and San Antonio are great cities. And I don't know too much about Dallas. And I haven't really been to Dallas, but um, you know, there's just a lot of stuff going on here. And you know, you go into like West Texas. There's some beautiful vistas and other things. So I mean, I think the quality of life is good. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of everything. My few friends of mine have lived there now a few years. Um, but the one thing you said that I think has been mentioned most by my closer friends is that, you know, if you're in New York or you're in SF, um, usually I think it can be described as what you do is who you are. And then because people just seem to be like, it's, it's their identity. It's like, oh, they, they work for Goldman Sachs. Or they run a startup or they are a, you know, partner at some venture company that's investing in, you know, new kinds of kitten tech. Like who, who knows, who cares? Right. But in Austin, people usually don't even mention what they do for work or why it matters. And I think that's kind of like a, a beautiful thing that's rare these days. Um, at least it's in my low experience. Key. It's low key. Yeah. I would say it's low key. Yeah. And my friend is just like, you just said, all, all these SF people moving here, like, we don't start conversations by asking what you do. We start conversations by, you know, just shooting the shit and having fun. Um, and I, and I, I do respect it a lot. And I, and I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time in New York and I'm mostly New York based. I'm in Seattle right now for a bit. But um, yeah, I, I, I do agree with your, your idea of self importance. Like, it, def it definitely exists. And I, I definitely think it's because it's from the legacy of New York. And, I don't know. I think I'm biased in New York in the fact that, you know, like New York summers in terms of social interaction and meeting uh, a giant swath of different people. I, I still haven't found another city that comes close to New York in that regard, but there are lots of downsides in New York. Right. That yeah. sounds right. Yeah. I've been, I used to, I used to go to New York like every year for a while, um, like in between like 2005 and like 2011 or something, you know, there was just, I, I would go like several times a year. I lived in, lived in the Bay area and I just like, you know, I mean, point to point flight. It's an easy trip, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so, have you traveled a lot throughout your life so far? I mean, I guess technically I have. I don't 
consider it compared to, but I mean, I've had to fly for jobs. I mean, before COVID, before COVID, I did fly a lot, I guess, maybe for a normal American. I don't know. I haven't traveled abroad too much. I've only been to like Europe once and, you know, I've been to the, to the Persian Gulf once and I was born in Bangladesh, but I guess compared to a regular American, that's actually a lot. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard I, to pinpoint. I, yeah, I travel like between, you know, California California, Texas, New York, Pacific Northwest, where I'm from, and I still have family, um, are the main points that I go to. I don't go too much to Florida. I've been to Florida. I mean, I've been to most of the states, that's for sure, yeah. but I don't go to Chicago too often. Um, I don't go to the Midwest that often, you know? Like, it's just like, yeah. I, I, I can look at my Google Maps, and it's just like, kind of like, you know, it's all for like Texas all the way into California, and then upwards into the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. And then, like, there's a northeastern bubble, right? Northeastern zone. And that, that's, sure. that's how I bounce around. Sure. And is, is there a certain place to you that is, like, a certain favorite? Um, you mentioned mountains. Are Like, I'm guessing it's probably going to be a place outside or maybe a national park that is, like, really special to you? I don't know about special. Um, I do I do like having, like, seeing the green and just, you know, like, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, yeah. And... You know, it's like there's like this Shire-like aspect to large parts of it, you know? Yeah, no, so, totally. <laughs> I'm in, I've been in Seattle for a year now, and I agree with that, you know, 100%. Yeah, yeah. So that definitely is, you know, from Oregon, that's definitely a big thing, you know. But um, I also like the energy in SF sometimes in the evenings. Um, in New York, New York too, but like New York is not as, as home as the West Coast is to me. So for yeah. me, that would be SF in particular and just kind of like the dynamism and all the different people from all the different walks of life. And, um, you know, the Silicon Valley lifestyle and culture can be a bit much sometimes with its self importance, but there's an optimism and forward thinking to it. Just like this intention to do good and get rich, rich as, you know, rich as hell or whatever, but still I like the, I like the sentiment. So that energy is positive for me. Um, in Austin, it's more about just kicking back with a beer, listening to music, being you know on the rooftop somewhere, and um, just the, the downtown energy of Sixth Street is kind of hard to beat. Yeah, and and do you think you'll stay there for a while, or you think you'll move back to the PNW near family when your kids get older, or? Um, I do not know uh, the world. I mean, COVID's changed a lot of things for me in terms of like I'm I'm anticipating traveling less, uh, just because like. I realized I don't need to travel as much. You know, why do I need to travel for work? And yeah. I don't know. Um, I would be okay with just kind of like withdrawing from a lot of things at this point in my life, maybe. Because I did do a lot of things and I did live a young life. I didn't have kids until my mid 30s, you know? So yeah. I, I really extended my 20s a lot. And I still am living a pretty young life for someone my age in their 40s. Um, so maybe. You know, I'd take a next step and just be more contemplative, focus on my sub stack and, you know, in terms of communicating with the public, do some contract work. I don't know. Yeah. So let's, let's dig deep into your sub stack. Um, what, what was the catalyst for starting that? Um, the catalyst was actually Matt Iglesias because he got on sub stack and he was getting a lot of subscriptions and I was a blogger back when he was a blogger and. I was just like, I was thinking, of, I created the Substack, I had a MailChimp mailing list, and um, when, and mostly it was because when Andrew Sullivan went to Substack, and Andrew and I are friends, we're friendly, definitely, and I really respect yep. him a lot, and I thought, if Substack is good enough for Andrew Sullivan, it's good enough for me, you know? And then when I saw Matt Iglesias go to Substack and make all that money, I'm like, damn, I mean, if Matt Iglesias can do it, I can do it, so it really kicked me into high gear, and um, I don't do what Matt or Andrew does, I do a different thing, like, as you probably know. Um, yep. So, you know, for, for your listeners, Razib.substack.com. But uh, it basically, I do, like, a lot of the genetics and history stuff where I think I offer, like, a particular value uh, that I, I don't think anybody else is doing that. Um, I don't think, frankly, very many people can do it. So um, that's what my Substack is about. And, you know, for the paid pieces, that's what they're about. And it's not like, you know, I don't post political com commentary every day. Like I write a piece like every couple of weeks that's really long. And I have some other things like podcasts with, you know, like I did a podcast with Matt Ridley, you know, a couple yep. of weeks ago. So um, I think like, those are interesting. And, you know, if you look back at, at the archives, uh, 
So that's my philosophy on Substack. I mean, it's great to get paid. Um, I've got like a core group of people that are willing to pay me, that really appreciate me. And that's just like a different dynamic than just kind of like putting it out there and that's it. You know, like this is a more dynamic, interactive thing that I've done in the past. Yeah. And, that, and I agree. And, and I was doing my own like blogging newsletter through my just like Squarespace. It was pretty basic. And then I kind of realized that I was spending a lot of time on this and I had, you know, a lot of people that, you know, enjoyed the content, but didn't really care if they got it, you know, once a month or three times a year. And then there was like a good quarter of people that they wanted it every week and they're willing to pay for that. Um, and I think that that's, that's like the future. It's like, I'll, I'll happily pay for any kind of content as long as I not, not, I know that it'll be guaranteed as good. It's just that I know it'll be re- researched and well thought out and, you know, make, make sense. Right. That'd be something that makes my, my head think. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, and you gotta, you got a good name too. Hollow scene. That's, that's actually pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird. So long story on long story short on that. It's like, so my podcast, and my Substack have the same name. I also use, I also use a username on uh, clubhouse cause I, my, my initials, I usually use those aren't, weren't available. Um, which is RMA. Um, which, which, which apparently like the guy is RMA on like Twitter and clubhouse, um, it's the same guy, but I don't know how he got him early, but whatever. Um, but yeah, so Holocene is like, I, I first learned of the word Holocene uh, from the Boney Vare song back when they made the album in like 2011 uh, when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And okay. and then like that same year, I, you know, started learning more about like what the, the from a scientific understanding what, what the, the term Holocene is, more of a historical perspective. And I just figured it was just like, I love talking to people from all different kinds of backgrounds. Like, like just, just in the past 10 episodes, I've had, you know, some of them are psychologists, some of them are graphic designers, some are pro athletes, some are, uh, you know, just like pure adventurists and photographers, and some are scientific researchers. And so I kind of like this, this kind of mixture of everything. And I really love this idea of let's talk about the human experience as a whole. And, and, you know, it's, it's really easy to relate to, but, but long story short, the idea is, you know, this this subjective reality we have called life is just so fascinating and i just want to continue to expand on that in every direction possible and i just couldn't think of a better name um that wasn't used elsewhere besides holocene well i mean it works for you man well yeah i appreciate that um and and that kind of let's let's kind of last few things um so I've always wanted to ask someone that has like a deep understanding of natural selection and I guess genetics and evolution, this question, but what are your feelings on love from like a personal perspective and like a scientific perspective? Well, I mean, personal and political kind of fused on that. I think, um, you know, I'm one of those people who don't think that that it's a cultural invention, as much as something primarily rooted in pair bonding monogamy um, as like basal, you know, as ancestral to our species. And um, it's something that's present in all cultures to various extents. Um, It's emphasis in terms of romantic love, like varies from culture to culture because, you know, you got to restrain certain things. You got to modify them in certain contexts, but you know, it's there in every person or in most people, unless you're a psychopath. So I think it has deep evolutionary roots. I think it's, um, primal in terms of personal, uh, you know, it's important because when you don't have it, um, you really, really miss its presence. And so I think, you know, when you have it, and I think I have it, uh, it's easy to take for granted. Um, and just like, assume it's a background condition of your life but it's not and so you have to cultivate people and treat them with respect in a way that makes it so that you know you can still have this super important thing in your life yeah i couldn't have said that um better if i tried so do you do you i guess the the secondary question that would be do you believe that humans are i guess I don't want to use the word genetically like as often as I have, but do you think humans are intrinsically monogamistic or do you think they're not? This is the argument I get in all the time. Yeah, I, I lean more towards the monogamy perspective, but obviously we're very, very flexible. We're omnivores, right? We can eat the yep. meat diet or the we can do veganism. We just have to be careful. Um, and so I think like there's many societies where polygamy, polygyny is is the norm, ideally, but very few men can pull it off because it takes a lot of resources. And so um, I think mostly we've been pretty monogamous just by necessity. 
but obviously in certain cultural contexts um, we can pull the polygamy off but we don't look like we're we don't look like we are a harem species like gorillas no we look like we're mostly a monogamous species where the men will opportunistically engage in polygamy yeah and and I I think that's that's a fascinating way to put it and you know if if you look at I'd like to think that most people I know that are still married past 30 or 40 years, um, they either just, I, I do believe that you can find not, not really true love, but that one person that is kind of it for you. And sometimes I, I know people that are married a long time that have successful relationships that are best friends, but they sexually, they, they go elsewhere after 30 years of marriage, right? They, they get each, each kind of, you know, yeah. deal with their own camp. And then the third thing is, I think that especially this is dying more and more, but there are definitely a lot of people that have been married way too long that shouldn't, but stay together because of constructs of society like religion or, you know, caring too much what other people think. Um, but I think or it's kids. mostly or kids. Yeah. But uh, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a product of divorce and, and I think that I, I even to this day, like my parents, uh, even though they've been divorced now for 21 years, uh, as of this, sorry, 20 years as of this, as of this year, uh, they're still really good friends. And I, and I think I'm lucky in that regard and it's not always the case, but, you know, I, I just think my mom always says, like, look, if, if you're not happy, you're not happy, right? There's no point in staying in it. There's no there's no virtue signaling to being like, oh, I've been monogamistic my entire life. And I, I think that, that that idea that was pretty pure in American society in the 40s, 50s, even way earlier than that, um, is is quickly dying with each new generation. Um, I think people people mm-hmm. people prize happiness much more than the social constructs of society now more. I mean, who knows? I mean, Instagram and TikTok would say the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Um, people seem to want to just assimilate now. Um, you mentioned diet, which is, brings up another good, good question. Um, what are your thoughts on, on diet and the human species? Do you have any like particular views? I know that, you know, nowadays it's, it's, it's almost become as a, a cancelable subject as anything else, you know, but. Mm-hmm. Well, what, I guess what I would say is like, um, I'm skeptical of one size fits all. I think humans have differences, individual differences, biological differences. And, you know, I think, it, you know, from a genetic perspective, from a physiological perspective, it's important to get a good sense on, you know, what sort of things you can afford and what sort of things you can't. And to give a concrete example, you know, as you know, the um, hypertension salt intake recommendations are based on people with a natural disposition towards hypertension. But that's not most people. So if most people don't have that disposition. Maybe they can't take salt. Now, if you have a risk for type 2 diabetes, maybe you should be more careful about you know desserts and sweet things, right? But yeah. maybe you can have savory foods or maybe you have hypertension but no risk of type 2 diabetes. Um, you know, the humans have only a finite amount of self-discipline. And so if you can allocate your self-discipline in the areas where you have to be self-disciplined, that might work a lot better than this no salt, no sugar, nothing with flavor. You know what I'm saying? Yes, totally. No, and I, I think that as we get more and more and, and, you know, as companies like Levels take off, which is, you know, real-time, accurate metabolic um, feedback, uh, I think people do really realize, um, you know, just just how specialized diets are. Diets are not one-size-fits-all, and that's why I think, like, all these fad diets you see where people pay money in a monthly fee to, you know, track points for what, you know, a, a cupcake costs them per day. It's just like you're just – I think it's just a scam at the end of the day. Um, so – on that, I'll get you out of here on a few kind of, uh, you know, quick questions. You can answer these in, you know, as, as many or little words as you please. Um, and, the, and the first one is, uh, you know, if you had a billion dollars that you couldn't spend in yourself, what problem would you try or attempt to solve? A billion. Um, I would probably pick a very poor country and evenly distribute a reasonable amount to everybody in that country or as many people as possible. Because I do think that, uh, you know, it's going to make a huge difference in a lot of people's lives. And some of those people, it's going to change their lives and they might actually make a huge contribution to the whole world. Who knows? Yes. Yeah. You know, I think in society, like the stimulus payment just hit most people's accounts in the past few days. And in America, $1,400 is, for some people, a ton of money, but for most, not that much. But if you brought it to a country, you know, in the poorest parts of Africa or Asia, like, that's life-changing amount of money, you know. Um, and so it does bring up a good point. So, so are you then a proponent of UBI? Mm, I am UBI curious. I think it needs to be executed and done well. Yeah. But I, I'm definitely curious, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a serious position, and it's a serious argument. It needs to be taken seriously. Yes. And I think that the only person in the political realm that really kind of 
is, you know, is a proponent of UBI, but also still questions it scientifically is probably Andrew Yang. Um, and I'm, I'm really kind of hoping as a New Yorker that he does get elected as mayor because I really would like to see what kind of, you know, because he, he said he's openly talked about the fact that he would like to try out UBI for the lower class of, of New York City um, and, and see what happens. It's more of an experiment. I think it'd be a really fascinating, fascinating thing to watch. Well, so I, I guess I would say I'm a proponent of trying out UBI locally as an experiment. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, is there a story that your friends or family like to tell about you? Ooh, there's many stories. Um, um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know about my family. I think that the stories my friends usually tell about me is that I tend to make an outrageous, um, I used to more when I was younger, I make an outrageous entrance and make a big first impression on some people, whether it's positive or negative. So one of my, actually my oldest uh, friend at this point, insofar as like we still keep in touch after all these years, is um, first day of college, I'm 18. I just walked up to him and I was like, I was like, um, what do you think about abortion? That was like the first <laughs> thing I ever said. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, at the time he was a Catholic and he was just like kind of shocked, you know. And, and, I, and with other guys, I was just like, you virgin? You know, like I just, yeah. So, I love so that. that's, that's the kind, of, kind of person I am, which is like come, come at you really fast. And obviously some people love it and some people do not love it. Um, it's not generally something that people are ambivalent about. So, yeah, um, yeah that, that, that's probably how people would explain me to others. I think we come from the same school of thought because I, I truly don't believe that any question is taboo, right? So, you know, I, I think people would be like, you can't ask that question. It's like, why not? Well, I, I can ask it. You don't have to answer it. I've heard it so heard that so many times. If I had a penny, every time, yeah, you'd have the billion dollars did, to give to whatever yeah, country you want. <laughs> yeah, did, did you just ask that? I did, and I will ask again. Yeah, no, it's like I wasn't. I wasn't kidding. Um, and and I, I do the same thing. But if for, from your perspective, is that to really just you, you want to get some candid opinions and reactions from people, or you want to kind of see if they're comfortable with? Uh, you know, ideas that most be maybe considered contrarian or just you want, you know, your kind of people, you know, you'll only get along with are ones that are just ready and willing to openly talk about most things. What do you, what do you think that is? I mean, I get along with a diverse array of people, but I mean, yeah, I do want to explore ideas and topics because, you know, who knows? They could be right. We could be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. My, my favorite is, uh, you know, I'm 26. I'm single. I'm on a lot of the dating apps and, uh, I usually ask questions that not, and I, I take it one step back. So like the question I asked you, like, what is something you believe that most don't? I like it for two reasons because you get to learn a potential contrarian view and, and give someone an opportunity to be candid. Um, but also it's fascinating to see what people think most people don't believe in. And sometimes the, re- the, the responses I get are things that I think are very commonly believed in. And so it's really an, a fascinating kind of research or, or viewpoint and like subjective social theory. Um, but yeah. I, I, I'd say one third of the time people are like, that's a very personal question. Like, why are you asking that? It's like, I mean, I think it's very, it's very subjective. And also like, you could, you could give me an answer being like, you know, I think wiener dogs are ugly, you know, like that's technically, I don't know, maybe that's a subjective opinion, but, but at the end of the that's going like, to offend a lot of people. It will. It will. I personally, like I, I actually don't mind dachshunds, but um, I, I think at the end of the day, I think, I think that, you know, society is growing in two directions. There's one part that's becoming more open and, and willing to talk about many things. And the other, the other part just wants to cancel everyone for, you know, like, you know, like, I, I think my favorite example to use nowadays is the school board in SF removing Abraham Lincoln's name from schools because they said he didn't do enough for slaves and slavery. And it's like, come on, yeah. like what, what do you, <laughs> where do you draw the line at that point? Right. Um, uh, so, if you could send a single push notification to everyone's phone in a given area, uh, where would it be and what would it say? Ooh, you have some interesting questions here. Um, where would it be and what would it say? Um, I would do it in Santa Clara County. Um, I think people, you know, that's Silicon Valley for the listeners out there. Um, and what would it say? Um, you know, I could say a lot of different things, but maybe it would say, um, read Nick, Nick Bostrom. 
Okay. And so for the listeners out there, Nick Bostrom is a philosopher who works in existential risk. And so, um, you know, obviously I don't think an asteroid is going to hit us next year, but it could. Um, and we do need to we do need to think a little bit about the tail risk of these very, very low probability but high impact events that could cause problems in our civilization, our society. And arguably COVID-19 is a little foretaste of that. It's not really that bad and it's not really that unlikely. But, um, you know, this is the worst since the Spanish flu. So, yeah, there you go. It's been 100 years, right? So, um, yeah. and, and of his books, uh, particularly, so, I mean, I've... I'm familiar with super intelligence, which I believe is, I believe that's him. Um, and then he also, yes. I'm looking up right now, the, the, so the book you're referring to is the global catastrophic risks. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 Looks, looks like a huge book. Yeah. 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 So I think, but you know, and like when I say like read, I mean, you don't need to read like front to back, but just like people being aware of these issues when you're a technologist sure. Sure. and when you work on engineering problems, I think that that'd be like just good for people to have on the radar. So I'm guessing you, you brought up a point and you may read the same way I read where it's like, I don't really read for completion. I just read until like if something piques my interest, I'll read that part of the book. And if I keep finding it interesting, I'll keep reading it. But very fewly will I very, very rarely will I pick up a book and read it like front to cover, uh, back, you know, back to cover to back, um, just for like completion. I feel like modern society is too obsessed with counting books and not seeking actual information. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so I, I would say it depends on the type of book. Um, if it's a science book, um, I am much more modular, but if it's a history book, I am actually much more serial and I will do front to back. That because makes sense. With history books, <laughs> they're not, you know, they're narratives and they're not really structured in a way where you can like decompose as easily. Yeah. Um, whereas as you know, with science books, um, often the chapters are more thematic than sequential. Yeah. It's not, it's not an indexable, so to speak, or referenceable e- yeah. as easily yeah. as would be. Um, any book and and uh, so off that are there any other books that you've read recently that you would highly recommend for people to check out recently let me think um, so let's just say the last like COVID is basically a year so in the, in the past year of COVID is there anything you read that oh, I really see, I see. yeah I, I would um, Joe Henrik's The Weirdest People in the World that's a good book to read not totally accept but it's a good book to read Interesting. You want to give people a little, uh, you know, 10 second synopsis of why they should? Yeah, because it just shows it's basically making an argument why um, the family structure after the fall of the Roman Empire is responsible for the European conquest of the whole world. <laughs> that's fascinating. All right. I'm, I'm going to read that. Um, that's, that's my, my sister is uh, she's an anthropology and sociology major. So her and I get into lots of debates on this kind of uh you know, because I come from a very hard science, and she comes from a pseudoscience background. So, like a lot of our arguments are obviously just they fall off the rails very quickly. Oh, wait, did you just say pseudoscience? Yeah, but you know. Okay, no, I think I totally agree with you. I just think yeah. that, that's based to just like call that out. <laughs> no, it's it, it's sure, but like I I've gotten called out by everyone, including my sister. But you know, I think that I think the first person to really trumpet this publicly is Naval. Like he's he's and also Nassim Taleb, right? It's like as soon as you start adding science to things that actually aren't science, it's it, it's really the beginning of the downfall of society, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's what I believe. But yeah, no, I mean it is right. These are really subjective things, you know. It's versus you know, I believe in you know, aerospace engineering. What I come into is 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 pretty objective, right? It's like this this superfluid yeah. at this temperature passing over this wing will do this, and if you don't yeah. do this, it'll the plane will stall, right? Like that's a, that's in my mind objective, right? <laughs> At least to our atmosphere yeah. and human human experience, but but yeah, uh, and and that's something where I can I can obviously go dig deep, but uh, you know, you and I, I'll be in Austin in probably a few months, um, and and I'd love to catch up with you and and talk about the more uh, you know risque topics, and we can decide if we record it at a later date. But uh, <laughs> For um, sure, that's, this this is the kind of stuff that that I get really excited about. It's like the 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 conversation you have at dinner, where if other people listening nearby only caught a sentence, they would probably try to kill you on the spot. Um, <laughs> that is those those are the kinds of conversations that I I seek. Um, and you know, like, as you said, you know, there are a lot of authors, especially philosophers and people that say things like this that have been canceled or attempted to be canceled, especially in the past two years. And that makes me almost want to read them more, you know, it's like, what what are they, what are they saying that is so controversial that is, you know, so dangerous to progress, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and then I guess the last question I'll ask you um, before I get you out of here is, uh, you know, you have two kids, right? Three. Um, three kids, excuse me. Um, do you have any advice for their children's generation? So your, your grandchildren's generation? What I, the advice that I would have would be grasp reality with two hands and, you know, reach far and stretch because, you know, there's no shame and failure and there's so many rewards and success. Um, you know, don't stay at the back of the cave because you're just scared at the lights that are outside. That's a fantastic line. Uh, I may I may have to steal that for a while. Um, otherwise, this has been this has been great. And uh, if there's anything else you want to add or throw in there, I'll, I'm going to plug your um, podcast and newsletter in the intro and the outro of this. I want to record mm-hmm. later. Um, but otherwise, yeah, just just if you want to plug anything else, uh, now's the time. Um, so yeah, just it, all my stuff you could find it at rizib.com, or azib.com. Uh, I'm jealous. You have your name as a domain. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> Rob is a bit more of a, of a yeah. common name in the in the domain seeking world. Um, but otherwise, uh, Razib, thank you for your time, and uh, I look forward to uh, catching up with you personally one day soon. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. Bye. I hope you all enjoyed this edition of the Holocene Podcast with myself and Razib Khan. You can find Razib online at Razib Khan. That's R A Z I B K H A N and Razib R A Z I B dot com. As always, you can find me at Rob Ockenclos and Rob dot com. I hope you all have a fantastic and wonderful rest of your day. Goodbye.